mention it in my prayer, but death is a horrible thing, isn't it? The, the reality of death is that it is, is painful, that there's a separation, a distance, a discouragement that's associated with it. Um, but, but I'm here to declare to you today, I, I want to celebrate together with you today, that God holds the keys of death. That there is victory potentially through death. And this morning, we're going to get to see this, this historical event that took place where, where we see a man who was dead, who God, with his infinite power, allows him to experience new life. His name was Eutychus, and he's a man who will see this story. But what's encouraging for us today as we study God's word is that we're going to see also historically the words that the Apostle Paul penned during this time period in history. And so we're able to study in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians words that he recorded. And what we're going to see today, I hope, is going to be an encouragement. It says at the end of this, this section that we're studying that they left there with great encouragement. And the reason why I think you're going to leave here encouraged is that we're going to see the fact that God not only is aware of the reality of death, but he's made provision for it. And in the light of the reality of death, we're going to see these words that are going to be written that we're going to see as this young man awakens, I hope we awaken ourselves to a reality. And that is this, that, that through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that death was swallowed. Think of these words in 1 Corinthians, that death was swallowed up in victory. This, this picture of a whale is pretty, pretty awesome, isn't it? Uh, Allie and I, we used to, in Southern California, go uh, kayaking on an ocean uh, near a place where we could see whales from a distance, sea lions. In fact, some of you saw this in the news last week. You're going to have to look up here really close to see this, but uh, this, was in the vi this video was taken last week. You've got to look close here. So um, there's a couple that's back here on a kayak. And, oh yeah, that's, that's a whale swallowing them. That's what happened. It's okay. They're all right. They got spit back out by the whale. They were fine. But uh, can you imagine what it felt like to be tasted by a whale? Uh, I guess he didn't like their taste, right? Swallowed up. In this passage, what the Apostle Paul was writing was a synopsis of a passage that actually came out of the book of Isaiah. And in that, that statement, it says, death is swallowed up in victory, and do you know what the next word is? Forever. That's an incredible statement. Now, now, now some of you stand back and you say, wait a second. I, I, I have been to too many funerals for me to understand what this means. And I join you in this. I, I, I share with you, I have been to every kind of funeral. I've spoken at every kind of funeral. Infants, grandparents, beloved parents, children. I have been through suicides. I've watched these, I've wept with people. And I want you to catch this as we're talking about the reality of death, that the Lord Jesus, even in his lifetime, experienced physical death in such a way that he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, even a man who he would prove his victory over death just minutes later. Death was never the plan. And it's essential for us to understand that when we, we quote these verses, like God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that that 
declaration of God's provision for death was a gift from him. That the swallowed up in victory was actually the death of Christ, the cross behind me representing this, this event that took place where he literally died on behalf of our necessity to die. That he made provision for your and my sins. And so this swallowed up in victory, the, the word is to drink it down, to consume it whole. It didn't get spit back out, but it was finally done because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's forever, according to Isaiah 25, verse 8. And so today, as we come together in this place, I mentioned church family members who are mourning. You have mourned before. I was in the room as a teenager with my aunt who passed away, went to be with the Lord. The sounds were terrible. The ambulance as it came, it was a devastating moment. And that moment was powerful and heartbreaking. I was just a kid. But you know what's encouraging for me? Is that I know that someday I'm going to have the privilege of looking across from my aunt when she's received the new body that God has provided for her. And we are going to begin to be able to worship and fellowship together because of God's ability to swallow up death. It's incredible to me. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to begin by seeing this time period where the Apostle Paul was in a life or death situation. In fact, uh, last week we studied this, that there was a group of people in Ephesus that were so angry, so so intense, that they, they had gathered together and they were ready to attack the Apostle Paul. And it says this in, in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, this event that had taken place, Paul sent for the disciples. And before I read any further, I want you to notice that multiple times here, Paul is going to be encouraging those who were living out their faith in these days. And I just want to remind you this morning, there were reasons back then to be discouraged in their faith. There's reasons today to be discouraged in our faith. There's things that we wrestle with. There's disappointments that we carry with us, and that's okay. What the Apostle Paul did, even as he walked in the valley of the shadow of death, he chose to be a man of deep encouragement. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. This, this much encouragement would have meant that he would have stood and he would have said, be strong. That, that last sentence, it's easy to overlook, but that last sentence is saying there were, there were threats on his life. He was under this constant state of persecution. And I think when we study the Apostle Paul in Acts, it's easy for us to, to kind of make him a hero for us, that we, we look at him and we say, well, he was a man who was unlike us. But I want to remind you, what's great about our historical understanding of God's word is that this, this, this genre of the book of Acts is a historical narrative. It tells the story of what took place through the lens of Luke, the good physician. And and what we get is this also understanding historically that the Apostle Paul wrote certain books during this time period. First and Second Corinthians, especially Second Corinthians, penned 
during these days. And Romans, as he records these words, and, and what we're able to do is to hear Paul later describe in detail what was happening, what held him up, why he couldn't go through things. And I want you to read, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can put your finger here and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2, verse 12. This is what Paul said. He was discouraged. He says this. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them. Then I went to Macedonia. In that, in that section, he's saying, God opened a door for me to do ministry. And I went the other way. Uh, he, he says, I was looking for Titus. Titus wasn't there. I gave up. I kept, I kept going. Later on, he describes this more intensely in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That, those words are discouraged words, right? They're, they're a man who knew truth, but that was wrestling with the, the, the hope that was there. What, what's going to happen? And I want to encourage you that the temptation to give up is real. In fact, we know from, from previous passages that the Apostle Paul was involved in these miraculous healings, right? Wouldn't that have been great to see? He's involved in these miraculous healings. And now if we, if we turn forward to, um, to a passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul describe his own afflictions, and that God, in his infinite wisdom, chose not to heal him. I'm going to guess that in this room today, there's some of you that are frustrated and angry because of the fact that God hasn't chosen to heal you or to fix the circumstances that you're going through, that there's still ongoing pain. And the Apostle Paul wrestled with that, and his conclusion is incredible. I hope it's an encouragement to you. It says this in verse 7, it says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Now, now this, this was not evidence of God abandoning him. In fact, the way he describes this, he goes on to say, a messenger of Satan was sent to harass me, to keep me from becoming proud or conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. We, we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. Some speculate that it was his eyesight, others that it was carryover from malaria, other. So, so Paul's sick. There, there's something that's constantly frustrating him. If I asked you to be honest this morning, you guys could fill out a list, couldn't you? Of things that are discouraging, frustrating. Later, we'll see him talk about our bodies as they're wasting away, right? He's saying, like, this is discouraging. And God, if, if God can swallow up death, why can't he just fix this little problem for me? Some, some of you, I, I went to a funeral one time. I, it's not even hard for me to say this, but I went to a funeral one time for a friend of mine. Her, her father had passed away. And the description of his life was that at a young age, he had something like this that was discouraging and it literally defined the rest of his life because he was so angry with God. God, why haven't you? Why can't you? Why didn't you? And here, here we see what the apostle Paul said three times I cried out. We could probably add zeros after that. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I'm sure he prayed in Jesus name. I'm sure he prayed for a miracle to take place. But he said to me, my grace, this is God's voice, my grace 
is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, That God understands our struggles. He understands the sting of death. Death's sting is all around us, even in our physical bodies. But the Lord says back to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul's conclusion is incredible. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That strength comes from a God who knows our needs, that's right there beside us, that can fix these things, or that that ultimately promises us a hope of victory over death for eternity in his presence. So sometimes God doesn't choose to heal. But Paul's response to this was not like Job's wife who said, it's time for you to curse God and die. Instead, what he chose to do was he chose to say, I'm just going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord in, even in the midst of a time period where the pain is great, where I'm discouraged. It's frustrating. I want to give up. I'm not ready to keep moving forward. What we know is that he did keep moving forward and it set the stage for him. And we don't know when this took place around this time period, but this miraculous healing of this young man is going to take place. And I think it's going to allow Paul to pin the words, where, oh, death is your sting. Even though it's all around us, we know that God can take away the sin, the sting of death. I love this in verse four. It goes on to describe that even in the midst of the Apostle Paul's great pain, that he continued on mission. He understood our mission to share the antidote to death as a representative of the love of Christ. That Paul kept doing what God had called for him to do, to show how much he must suffer for the namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you look at these names, uh, verses 4 through 6, and you kind of say, well, why are there all these weird names? Who are these people? We recognize Timothy. Who's this? I want you to understand that this was a really significant thing. The reason why this was so significant is that at this time in the history of the church in Jerusalem, there was a lot of people whose lives had been heavily disrupted. This was a time period where, especially for Christians, they were suffering. They, they were having trouble meeting their needs. Their daily bread wasn't being met. And what happened was that there was a great gathering of funds. We know this later from First and Second Corinthians, that they took up an offering to bless other people. Now, these churches, the ones that we're looking at, Berea and in the different locations, they're just baby churches. They're brand new. But you know what's encouraging to me is that even these baby churches that had just started, they understood that their resources were not just for their own benefit, but that they're going to invest them for the sake of other people's needs. And and in this case, it was the church in Jerusalem. They're going to be blessed. And, And what happens here is the Apostle Paul surrounds himself with a group of people who serve as people that help him to not be able to be accused of doing anything wrong with the money. That, that he was so smart that he understood that, that there was a, a financial uh, burden that he had that he was carrying with him. And he did not want to embarrass the name of Christ at all. So he surrounded himself with representatives from all these churches. And, and they were just his, his guys that were helping to make sure that nobody could accuse them. We use this phrase, even as we're 
gearing up for our annual meeting about, about elders, that they ought to be people who are above reproach. And that's, that's a phrase that's complicated. It, it doesn't mean that somebody can't say something bad about them. But what it means is they live in such a way that, that those things don't stick, right? Because they've made decisions. I love my, I have a friend who's gone to be with the Lord, but he was a part of a group of men that traveled with Billy Graham on his crusades all over the world. And, and this, this man's job, one of his jobs was to, when they made it to a hotel, he would go into a hotel room and make sure there was nobody in there so there was no weird way that somebody could kind of entrap Billy Graham, but also to take out the television out of the hotel room. And he explained it. It was because Billy didn't want to have any temptations with whatever the junk was available potentially on TV. Now, you might listen to that and you might say, I can't believe that Billy Graham is so weak. <laughs> Actually, I think just the opposite. I, I think of that story and I think I am so thankful that he respected the truth of God's word and his rep, the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ so much that he would be willing to make a, like a, a conviction that was so great that it required that my friend would tell some funny stories about how hard it was to get the TVs out of the room sometime. And, and you just think about this, and this is what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's a man who wants to submit to the truth of God's word. He wants to live out his life in a way that's honoring the Lord. And in this time in history, uh, he does it beautifully. Now, just a quick a set of contexts here. Paul's team celebrated the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the, which followed immediately after the Passover in Philippi, and it was an eight-day festival. It was a celebration. And then his goal was to sail on to the Syrian port with Jerusalem as his final destination. Uh, say it gets close to winter, it gets dangerous, and he also hears about a threat to his life. So his, his plans are going to be disrupted. It's not going to be according to schedule. I, I recognize right now there's a lot of people who are frustrated over the fact that the, the things that are happening are not according to their schedule. The timeline seems to be chucked out the window. It's not fitting into what I expected it to be, how I expected it to go. And, and Paul's example is we just keep moving forward. We, we adjust, we keep, we keep moving on. And, and it would be that recognition, this keep moving forward, care about the needs of others more important than your own needs, that... That, that really showed where he found his strength. And this leads to the second point this morning. I find it to be so encouraging to me. We know that there's a sting of death, but God is the only one who can remove the sting of death. He's the only one. The Apostle Paul, after he had talked about the, that death being swallowed up in victory, he says this in verse First uh, Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, and he's saying, like, God can remove the sting of death. I, I love this pastor friend used to tell this story, and it was incredible. He said that there was a long time ago, there was a little girl who had been stung by a bee when she was very small, and she had a horrible reaction. It was before the epi, and it was before they, they, were, they didn't know what would, so they warned them. The doctor said, if she is stung again, she may die. 
And so that little girl was, was so frightened of any kind of bee, any kind of fly that was around her. And then she was at home one time and she heard a bee that had entered in the room and she just went into hysterics. She's so afraid. And her dad comes running in the room and he grabs the bee and then he lets it go. And she's, she's shocked. Dad, why in the world would you let the bee go? And then he says, honey, come over here. Um, I want you to see something. And he shows her in his hand the stinger that's stuck in his hand. And he said, honey, that, that, that's, that bee has one stinger. It's, it's in me right now. It can't hurt you anymore. And he said, that bee's gonna die at some point. But, but what you need to know is I have taken away the sting of death potentially for you. Do you understand that's what God offers for us? When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the cross, when we talk about death, where is it sting? That, that the Lord Jesus, when it says that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his death was, so, uh, was, was an atoning sacrifice for our death, that his resurrection makes it possible for us to anticipate our resurrection. He showed us time and time again, I have victory over death, but you're gonna have to trust me. You have to trust me that I'm a promise-keeping God. And here, these words, as they're penned together, we're going to get to see the context that the Apostle Paul declares that I've even seen it firsthand. It says this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week when we were together to break bread. This first day of the week is the first time in Scripture that Sunday is mentioned as a time of gathering for worship. The church shifts away from Saturday evening, the, the, the time period that was a, the Friday-Saturday um, connection to the, what would, would take place in the Jewish synagogue. And now the church is gathering together on Sunday. You guys know I love to say this, that they remembered what day of the week it was. They they took it seriously and they're fellowshipping together. I, I love the way that, that um, Matthew Henry puts this. He says, though the disciples read and meditated and prayed and sung apart. In other words, they, they individually were worshipers of God. They thereby kept communion with God. Yet they came together to worship God and so kept up their communion with one another. Do, do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, He's saying they, they, they understood that they needed to maintain a relationship with God, but getting to do it together is precious. I want to celebrate this morning that we've had several people at Hope that have shared with me very specifically that first time back was really hard for them to come back to church, especially since things were shut down and they wrestled with it. It was really difficult for them. Some of you today, that might be your experience. You're going, this is really scary or hard or saw somebody climbing over ropes. It's obnoxious, right? It's a challenge. But, but at the end of the time, what we found is that second time gets easier, the third time. And, and what we find is that the statement about they are breaking bread together. They're taking the Lord's table together. They're remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that process, they're communing together. And, and I believe that, that we were made for that. And I'm thankful for technology that enables this. But I also look at this and I say that that right now that what the, the Lord's continuing to do in and through us is that he's allowing us to be people who gather together to worship him together, to celebrate the goodness of the Lord. It goes on to say, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered and a young man named Eutychus 
was sitting on the window and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul, this is great, as Paul still talked longer. Now, as far as I can check, no one's fallen asleep yet. Congratulations. But, um, but this has happened definitely before, right? I, I, uh, I love what J. Vernon McGee says. Um, you guys might recognize his name. I can't, or his, his, uh, his voice is very distinct, but he said, I confess that Paul's experience has always been a comfort to me. When I look out at the congregation and see some of our brothers or sisters out there sound asleep, I just say to myself, it's all right. Just let them sleep. Paul put them to sleep too. <laughs> I love that. Um, so so when, I've shared this story before, but uh, when I was a teenager, my, uh, my, um, I decided with my friends that we were going to go to summer camp and we were going to not sleep at all for the whole week of summer camp. Now that doesn't work out too well. And uh, about day three or four, we were in chapel. It was a Christian camp. It was great. And, and, and my eyes just started to get heavy. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, there might have been a little drool. And um, I, I hope there wasn't auditory snoring going on. But uh, while the, the speaker was, was speaking up front, I just, I just felt dead asleep. I mean, I was knocked out. And then I woke up to my big senior pastor pointing at me. He was about right where you are. And he says, Brennan, here, now. And he pulls me out. We go out back in the back of the, the, um, in the like area outside of where we were meeting that day. And he says, you will never know how, how, how painful and rude it is to have someone fall asleep while you're preaching. I think that's pretty funny, you know? <laughs> Little did he know what I'd end up doing for the rest of my life, right? In terms of that. But, uh, and then he went on to share with me how rude, well, well the reality is um, Eutychus was a young man who's listening to Paul go on and on. But let me give you a bit of context for this. That this going on and on was not just something where he was prone to be long-winded, but, but it's incredible. He's about to leave the next day. People had, had lit these lamps to hear his message. Some of the individuals in that room were probably slaves that the only time that they could hear the message of the gospel or gather together with other believers was going to be at midnight. And the Bahamas, there was a festival that they celebrated there, and it was so unusual around Christmas time. And it happened, it started at midnight. And when I inquired, why in the world is this so late? It's because the slaves that originally started this would only be allowed to have a few hours off at the end of the year because of the fact that they were owned by other people. And, and this was why they did this so, so late. So now there's this late gathering. And it wasn't just because Paul was a wonderful teacher. In fact, we know biblically that Apollos was a man that was known for his eloquent words that the apostle Paul's just teaching God's word. They, they're, they're soaking it up and, and, and poor Eutychus is, is sitting in the corner and his eyes are starting to get heavy. But how awesome is it that there was a teenager in the room that this wasn't just an old man or old woman's lesson, but there was a lesson that, that, that all could hear. And I also love that the windows were thrown open. Have you guys ever driven by a church that, that you can kind of see where they had windows at one time and they put brick in the, in the place of it, it kind of troubles you a little bit, doesn't it? Like you, your first thought is what's going on in there, right? Well, well in this context, their, their doors, their windows are wide open. There's nothing that they're ashamed of. The lights are turned up, which is the way I think church ought to be, right? Like we literally have the internet that is live streaming. Like everything I say, I'm accountable for what I have to say. We, we're not ashamed of what's going on. The apostle Paul is publicly communicating the truth of the gospel, even 
around people who may not appreciate the message of the gospel. And here, this young man, his eyes get heavy. In verse 9, his name Eutychus literally means lucky, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? That little um, young Eutychus sitting on the window sinks, sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer. He was completely dead as he fell from that window. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Can you, can you imagine if this happened here right now, that we'd be calling 911, someone would get the, the paddles to, to try to revive something. It would be such a crisis. It would be so scary. We don't know if there's blood. We don't know the whole story. Third story fall. Um, he was the, the good physician, Luke here, pronounces him dead. He was taken up dead. This wasn't just kind of dead. Some of you are fans of Princess Bride. He wasn't just mostly dead. He's completely dead. And here the apostle Paul goes down to him. He bends over him and taking him in his arms, he says to them, do not be alarmed. He tells them to stop mourning for his life is in him. Such a subtle statement, verse 10. He's, he's alive. And, and, and God proves himself once again that he has swallowed up death in his victory, that he holds the, the keys to death. And, and this wasn't the first time in history, it wouldn't be the last time in history that God raises a person from the dead. We think of Elijah and Elisha and Jesus, that, that there are other stories in, of these recorded times where God was victorious over death, even Lazarus, when we celebrate this. But the reality is Lazarus went on to die. That, that this, this healing, Eutychus, would go on to die. This, this wasn't the ultimate healing over death that God had provided for this young man. In fact, the message of the gospel that he heard was way more important than the physical healing that he was going to receive. He heard the hope of the gospel. There's a message of hope that's presented to him. It says this in verse 10, but Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms. He says, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and he'd broken bread and eaten it, just the, the right thing to do afterwards. They get some dinner, uh, late night snack, as they were literally, this is where we get the term burning the midnight oil, as they were burning the midnight oil for his life. And um, so he he's, he's, says, don't be alarmed. He eats the bread and then he converses with them a long while until daybreak. So they just keep right on going. They keep studying God's word. They keep preaching the message of hope in verse 12. Then they took the youth away alive and they were not a little con con confront, um, comforted. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great passage? They're just, they're just delighted. God showed himself to be victorious over the sting of death. And that sting of death was because of the mighty handiwork of God. The text goes on to say that they traveled from there over these next verses, and we won't go into detail, but they're making this, this trip back to Jerusalem here in time for the day of Pentecost. It's such a great, great passage. And so here, after spending three years in Ephesus, it was time for Paul to return back to Jerusalem and to continue on his mission. And it helps me to understand that that Paul, even though he'd experienced this, this moment in history, this was an incredible moment. It was a miracle uh, that he still had a mission. His mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. He wanted to be a man 
you continued to be generous with the gospel. So it wasn't like they just stopped there and, and, and canceled everything going forward, but they just kept moving forward. So victory over death is not an excuse to stop fighting for life. He continues to fight for what's next and the mission. And I, I think that it's important for us to understand that this day in history was not just Eutychus's lucky day. It was more than that. It was a physical illustration of what God can offer each one of us that's placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died so that we do not have to. His hope, our hope of our resurrection and is in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you guys still awake out there? This is really powerful truth. This is really meaningful truth to us. That we find our anticipation of the restoration of God's creation, the plan that he made through sending his son to die on our behalf, that it's just this unstoppable love of Christ, that, that we're going to sing the, these words. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as I close, that we're going to sing about living hope. Like this, this hope isn't a dead hope. It's not in something that was distant or far away, but it's our living hope that Jesus Christ in his death provides for us the life that, that we all desperately need. And Later, in 2 Corinthians 4.13, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. This is, this is powerful. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man, that, that, that's kind of gross, isn't it? The outer man is decaying. Therefore, well, our bodies are wasting away, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Father God, we love you and I thank you for these words. Lord, that, that we recognize that the struggle, the discouragement, the, the sting of death is something for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is described as being temporary. Uh, that, that the sting of death, while it is real, is one that you've made provision for. The only thing that, that we're required to do in the midst of that is to understand truly what it means to have a God who died for our sins and to accept that. And I just pray right now for each person that's here. I want to pray for the person who has, has been under the, the pressure of the sting of death, that it defines their pain, that they are constantly thinking about what what, what has been a source of great discouragement, the passing of loved ones or the watching their own bodies waste away, the discouragement associated with that. Lord, I pray for them that they would understand the victory that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, swallowed up. That phrase is so beautiful, swallowed up in victory forever. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would not only be aware of that, but that we would live like it. Lord, that we would live in the midst of our sufferings, challenges, discouragements, that we just live in the light of, of you being our living hope. And I also pray for those in this room, maybe those who've not placed their faith in you, that, that today would be a day when they recognize that, that that father that took the stinger of death is symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death that he 
willingly gave on that cross so many years ago that that when he died, he paid the penalty for our sins. When he arose, he gave us hope of our own resurrection. And, and in conquering death, Lord, when we think of Easter and the celebration of the resurrected Lord, Lord, we know that you are a God who has victory over death. And we praise you for it. I pray that that would be each and every person who hears the sound of my voice's story today, that they would place their faith and trust in you and in nothing else, because nothing else can remove the sting of death in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.